Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Market Show, Thursday, the 16th of June, as we record. Joined in the studio by Mitchell Labiak. Welcome back, Mitch. Hi, good to be back. Everyone's favourite colleague at the moment because he <laughs> brought in uh, baked goods yesterday. <laughs> I thought you were going to say because of my journalism, but no. No, but... no. <laughs> no, no, because of the food. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, I should yeah, should know. Uh, very, very nice, very nice cookies. Oh, thanks very much. I didn't make them, but I'll take the credit anyway. Who, who did? Uh, my wife. Oh, yeah. well, shout out to her then. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, if she's listening. <laughs> uh, Alex New and hi, Alex. Hi, John. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, thank you. And welcome back to Dan Jones, back from his holidays. Hi, good to be back. Good to have you back. Alex did try to take over permanently last week, but yeah, I did hear. I did hear. Yeah, yeah. it was a coup, <laughs> a failed coup. Dan, what are we what are we going to be discussing today? So yeah, we've got uh, a few things this week. The cover story: we're going to be speaking to Julian separately later on about shares for safety. The idea of building in a safety margin to the companies and and stocks that you buy, which obviously. It's pretty important at the moment. Other than that, we've got our result of the week, which is Crest Nicholson and a few interesting things going on there. And from that, uh, inevitably, perhaps we're going to lead on to a bit of a conversation about the housing market in general. It's always an interesting topic for everyone, I think. Uh, certainly everyone in the UK is a classic, uh, you know, chattering classes topic, if we can describe <laughs> ourselves that way. Yeah, we are the chattering class. Yeah, you know, by definition. Class. Yeah, yeah. Lovely stuff. Well, before we get there, here's what's happened so far this week. Plenty more tightening action from central banks globally as they continue to attempt to tackle rampant inflation. Uh, Wednesday, we had news that the US Fed made their first 75 basis point rise since 1994, uh, while the European Central Bank announced an end to bond purchases. Uh, The Bank of England sits a little later on, or potentially right now, uh, as we record, but... um, they're also expected to put up a, a rates rise. You'll you'll know what they've done, listener, more than more than we will. Elsewhere, the cryptocurrency industry continued to hemorrhage this week. Bitcoin touching fresh lows for the year. It's hovering above seventeen thousand pounds at the time of recording, having dumped seventy percent of its value since last autumn's peak. Some selected companies news. ASOS today lowered its full year profit guidance after the fast fashion giant said inflationary pressure was increasingly impacting our customers' shopping behaviour with rising return rates and faltering sales growth. Shares fell 25%. BP signed on to one of its most ambitious green industrial projects yet, taking a 40% stake in a massive hydrogen generation facility in Australia. The project's cost is an estimated £30 billion, with a final investment decision expected by 2025. WH Smith is reaping the rewards of the travel sector's recovery. In an update, they noted particularly strong sales at its airports and railway station shops. Sales are at 107% of pre-pandemic levels over the same period. Shares rose 7%. And sports betting company Entain has entered into an agreement to acquire a key competitor in the Netherlands. The company will pick up the entire share capital of BetCity for an initial £257 million. The boards of both Capital and Counties and Shaftesbury have waved through a merger between the two companies. The merger, which still requires the approval of shareholders and regulators, would create a £3 billion landlord, which would own almost 3 million square feet of West End real estate. 
Uh, another reminder to subscribe to our daily trader email for all these updates and more delivered for free into your inbox. Uh, link to that in the show notes. Finally, for today, back to the markets. Wall Street officially fell into bear market territory with a 4% loss on Monday, moving the S&P 500 21% below its January peak. FTSE 100 is down 5% since last Friday as well. Those accurate at the time of recording, of course. Over to you, Dan. Thanks, John. Yeah, so we are turning to our result of the week, which is Cress Nicholson. Mitchell, uh, you wrote, uh, analysed these results for us. Seemed like a, a fairly decent um, set of results, but despite the headline figures being a little, uh, you know, on the negative side. Yeah, it's a funny one. It, obviously, it's a £50 million loss, but that comes with a, a large asterisk, not just one which Cress Nicholson would like you to know, but also... A, a quite a fair one. They confirmed on their balance sheet for this result that they're going to pay 105 million towards cladding costs. So you take that out of the equation, the profit then looks sort of in line with last year's profits when they only were paying 10 million towards cladding costs. So revenue is good, revenue's on the up, but I suppose the looming question is whether there's going to be sort of more cladding costs considering that's what hit their bottom line this time around. Yeah, I should I should say these are obviously half year results for the first half. Yeah, we'll come on to, to I suppose the the outlook for the sector and, and the market in general in a minute. But yeah, just to talk about cladding a bit more, I suppose it's uh, you know we had the um, the government you know leaning a little harder on uh, the sector a couple of months ago. We've seen a lot of provisions being raised in response to that. I think Crest said management said they believe they're over the bulk of those costs now. But as management would always say such things, I suppose as there's still perhaps some lingering uncertainties as to, you know, whether the these costs may increase again in the future. You know, the government may want to raise some more money for repairs, that kind of thing. So there's a question mark there, isn't there? Yeah, it's exactly that. I suppose what it comes down to is how much you think Cress Nicholson knows or how much you want to take them at their word. Because, of course, they said in April that this new... Because they've already put £47 million towards cladding um, or cladding remediation. And they said in... Uh, I believe it was April, but they said they, they would estimate they'd need to put in another 80 to 120 million they've now put in 105 so that's pretty much bang on what they said but then of course as you were saying it's sort of this is largely dependent on the on the government because the they could change the threshold for what you know what sort of cladding they want remediated there are also other fire safety concerns in in buildings which they may need to sort of deal with as well there's waking watch there's a lot of I suppose there's a lot of things that the government could ask house builders to do and much more ways they could raise money from them, considering they're not, I believe they want to raise something in the region of four to five billion, and they've currently raised about two. So the government could yet ask house builders to cough up more. And I think Chris Nookerson might well, despite what they say, they could well be aware of this. They've got 170 million in net cash in their coffers at the moment. Now that could be for a variety of reasons, but it could also be arguably a sensible sort of sitting on that cash just in case the government want more money from them. So it's a, yeah, it's an interesting one. Another uh, thing you raised in your write-up was, you know, the possibility flagged by some analysts uh, as uh, is sometimes the case of, you know, private equity getting involved, which, you know, is a possibility for almost every UK company, it seems <laughs> yeah. at the moment. But uh, um, I'm sure that, that helped with, with sentiment as well. Yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a really interesting one. So funnily enough, at the time I wrote the results, I, I, you know, the share price um, went up 10%. Um, but the share price now is now more or less back down to, to where it was. So I think there was just a, 
I mean, I'm not going to try and guess the the minds of shareholders and stock pickers, but I think there was a sort of idea that oh, this could company could well be taken up by private equity. It's currently trading at a twenty nine percent, I believe it is something like that. yeah, twenty nine percent discount to tangible net net asset value. That was a stat calculated by Peel Hunt at the time. They calculated it as one of the biggest, if not the biggest, discount among the the major house builders. So it certainly seems like it could be a private equity target but of course that's far from any sort of guarantee and i think private equity takeover has been hard to guess at the moment it's not always about discount to nav it's about whatever private equity feels like buying that day to be honest so it wouldn't be it wouldn't i wouldn't go as far as to say that it'd be a a silly uh, assumption to make but it's also it's far from a guarantee it would it's a long way off if it does happen alex what do you think about the you know, the sector in general at the moment, it's fortunes, it's prospects. Yeah, I mean, the, I suppose the other thing to factor into the the costs which are still going to come out of the, the profits of house builders in the next couple of years is the developer's levy, which is a proportion of their profits above 25 million. Uh, so I, I guess Crest Nicholson's results, half-year results, given that the levy only came in at the beginning of April, don't really cross over with that period. So that that's something that investors have factor in it over the, the coming few years but um as to the, i suppose the the prospects for the the sector the comments they've been making this past re- result season are generally to the effect that they are handling uh, cost inflation even though it seems you know it's obviously a, a concern and the the builders which are focused in the areas of the country where demand is the strongest which it seems to be the bulk of them now not many are focused in places like london where you've got real concern about the outlook for house prices and planning legislation that they kind of have a, a decent they have a decent view ahead of them about uh, as as to the returns on equity that they they can make obviously there's a considerable amount of caution which might prevent some of these bids but you know interesting to see some of the some of the speculation around tie-ups within the industry i mean these these shares are they're quite staggeringly cheap at the moment and they're not cheap falling knife typical stocks where there are real looming problems with their balance sheets ahead crest nicholson's got 170 million pounds in cash as um the uh, the half year point and so they're they're being cautious in 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 additional uh, remediation they might need to make but that's not a company in distress. That's a company which is trading against forecasts of 38p adjusted EPS, some seven times forward earnings. I don't know. My fee- my feeling has been that the, the sex has been kind of at the bottom, but I've been saying that for a few months, <laughs> and uh, it is it has found a, you know a, a fresh bottom with every passing month. So um, what do I know? They they do look ridiculous to cheap, and they're all screening on the stock screens we want we run each week as among the cheapest shares. So um, I suppose there was a perhaps a, you know a sign of a crest you know backing you up backing up that belief in its results as well because it did you know despite you know concerns about the economy and perhaps the housing market which we'll come to in a second you know they did raise their guidance for the full year as well which is you know a creditable achievement in the given the current backdrop I'm sure that helped uh, with the results to lift in the share price as well but on which note yeah we should you know turn to the mm. housing market and the UK market and its prospective fortunes obviously the the Bank of England is uh, continuing to raise rates, as uh, most central banks are this week. You can look at a number of metrics in terms of the usual ones in terms of affordability, but increasing now, increasingly now in terms of mortgage affordability, arrears are rising, 
you know, I think I saw yesterday, you know, the arrears are at the highest level for a decade, if not slightly longer. Admittedly, these are very low levels of arrears. You know, there's nervousness, obviously, about the UK economy. Mitchell, you wrote a piece this week about the housing market and how Indeed. these things might affect Indeed. it. Yes, I did. So, yeah, that on that arrears point, when you said you read it somewhere, you might well have read it in my piece, or maybe you read it somewhere else as well. I'm not <laughs> the only person to be making these points. But, um, yeah, there's some data from Savills that forecasts that mortgage payments as a percentage of incomes are risen to 24% at the end of 2022. So, essentially, their mortgages are the most expensive they've been relative to earnings since 2010, which would then explain why uh, mortgage arrears are also at the highest level they've been since 2010. And Savills were keen to caveat this with, you know, we're still way off levels of 2007, 2008 credit crunch levels or the 1980s and 1990s. But then, of course, Savills would say that, wouldn't they? But no, they. It, I mean, they are, they are, of course, way off. But it is notable that it's the highest it's been since 2010. And it's also the first year since about 2012 that, that we might see a, house, a fall in house price growth, i.e. I, a fall in house prices. Once again, that's according to Savills. So... But to put this into context, though, this would be a a one percent fall in in house prices, and Savills were their original forecast for this year was more conservative than the actual house price growth we're seeing. So, just caveat that. So, in other words, they've been wrong before when they've claimed that the housing market will slow down, but they are once again claiming the housing market will slow down. So it's a yeah, it's a it's a, it's a tough one to guess, yeah. but the signs seem to point to if not a fall in house prices, then at least less growth in house prices. I think the thing that underpins uh, these discussions in the UK and, you know, the, the question of what house prices obviously have risen so far in uh, for such an extended period, a long-term view certainly, and, you know, there's a large group of people waiting, it seems, for, for that to change or wondering if that will ever change. And, you know, you're getting some conditions now, albeit rates still only, you know, 1, 1.25%, you know, not very high, but you are getting tighter conditions. But the other factor which always provides the ballast is the sheer lack of supply of housing, which really does put a floor under the market and means this situation we're in now, even if things get a bit tighter, you know, it's hard, famous last words perhaps, but it's hard to see a lot of forced selling and therefore and the lack of supply means falls if they do materialise should be quite quite minimal. Is that a fair a fair assessment? Yeah, it's always a difficult it's always a difficult one to guess. I mean supply and demand it it seems to be this this constant, you know, you almost sound like a bit of a parrot saying that there's supply and demand imbalance in, in house building. But it's it it is a large thing that's sort of keeping costs up. The government obviously wants to try and address that, but it's been trying to address that for years. And the help to buy I think they, they hoped that the the help to buy scheme would 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 address this by allowing people to to buy more homes, but really that just sort of I mean, there's a lot of criticism of it, but the main one is that it, it ended up just artificially inflating the the cost of houses. So unless the government begins to embark on a massive house building program, then we're going to end up with this supply and demand imbalance, arguably for for some time to come. You're certainly seeing it around again to use our anecdotal evidence, but you know, in London at the moment, the you know. I'm not looking to buy, but I know a couple of people who are, you know, buying or selling as everyone tends to at any given moment. But the yeah, number, I should, I should, number I should of properties say around, I, I have a vested interest because I'm currently trying to to buy. Well, you will know as well as yeah, anyone. Then so. but the number of properties <laughs> on the market is incredibly uh, low. It seems at the moment. Alex, how do you how do you see the you know the the state of the the housing market? 
Well, I, I, I can also still have a vested interest because I'm trying to sell uh, a flat at the moment. Uh, so I'm. You two could work together. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, you're I, selling I, in Croydon. Yeah, <laughs> I'm afraid it's, well, it's it's available in Peckham if you want a two, two bed flat in Peckham. Yeah, so I have a vested interest in 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 house prices staying. Uh, unsustainably elevated uh, yeah I, I mean it, it's it's a very interesting one price movements aside I mean the the, the chart that um, Mitchell's put in in his piece really interesting a combination of the enormous house price growth we've seen over the last decade but also some of the, the forecasts that Savills have made I suppose one thing that jumps out of that is that if you know if we add in inflation house prices are, f- are already falling that sort of cuts both ways because in terms of mortgage affordability, and we don't want to downplay how unaffordable housing costs are for so many so many people. But it's 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 a consideration, isn't it? If if inflation is is going to be rising rising, that's also eating away at the value of, of the nominal value of mortgages, and and lots of people are on fixed rate mortgages. Actually, you know, not having a terrible time of it. Could that therefore underpin prices a, a bit more? Yeah, hard to say. It, it remains, I, I suppose, the most important thing, which we can't overlook, both from an investor perspective, but broadly, is just that that supply-demand fundamentals. We can talk about prices all, all the time, but it, it does come back to um, the, the housing people want, the housing that's being supplied, and they, there is a, there's a huge mismatch there, and, and that's not going away for the, the next few years, at least. I think with a, it seems to me, you know, you know, you know, you're relatively positive on the house building sector, and maybe you know there is this macro overhang of people worrying again about you know what's going on with the economy and therefore demand for for housing, um, how yeah. that could be affected as well. But you know, maybe the bigger implications are going to be for you know people involved in the flow of uh, housing transactions. You know, whether that be you know the estate agents or whether it be you know, even things like home improvements, things like that, you know, okay, on one hand, people are staying put, but on the other hand, obviously, we've had a huge boom in that market over the past yeah. few years, which is starting to unwind as well. So it's, it's interesting that uh, Mitchell in the piece also mentions the, the latest survey from from Ricks about the, the, the sudden drop in new buying inquiries. I, I mean, I, I wonder if it's there's a kind of fatigue setting in, in the industry a little bit, because you've got lots of people who've been chasing the, the idea of moving onto the property ladder or moving up the property ladder. And for, for the last year and a half, and some of those people just haven't managed to do that and at a certain point with economic conditions looking bleaker ahead people may be settling with their their current situation i don't know it's um it's is is an interesting um signal it's hard to say exactly what it is what it signaling but um yeah. but yeah if that is a, if that is sustained then that that could mean that demand is actually pulling back sharply so um it's a really difficult one to predict i mean it, it's the nature of the beast, the housing market. You've got so many different interests, arguably conflicting interests, because of course it's in house builders' interests to keep supply low, because they don't want they don't want to flood the market with lots of housing, because that will that will affect their bottom line. Of course, that's not always within their control, because their competitors might end up building more houses, and you know that's that's how markets work. But at the moment, it it doesn't. Nothing seems to have changed that sort of fundamental fact that. The house builders are building enough houses to to keep them profitable, and the way to address the supply and demand imbalance would would arguably be for the the government to build more homes, or for other forms of housing to come to market, or for smaller house builders to build more homes. 
But it's it's unlikely that the house builders are going to, in terms of what house prices might mean for them, of course, what it means for the for the wider public is um, a different question entirely. I suppose what I'm saying is even if house prices were to fall, going back to Cress Nicholson, I don't think Cress Nicholson would be too negatively impacted by that. As we were talking about, you know, the cash they're sitting on, their revenue still growing. I think they could stomach a... 1% fall in house prices because it might because then it you know that would then yeah. arguably correspond with a surge in surge in demand so yeah one would hope for a, a few percentage point fall in house prices shouldn't be too difficult for them as long as it wasn't uh, sustained over the longer term mm. but yeah i suppose we we shall see whether that potential value in the the sector is going to be unlocked or if you know these these concerns continue to override them for i'm crossing my fingers for a house price falling growth. Well, yeah you two on diametrically <laughs> opposed uh, viewpoints we'll see what happens there but again maybe you know the uh, the middle ground of uh you know stagnation or sclerosis in the housing market might you know mean no one is entirely satisfied but from a shareholder point of view maybe that that's uh, that could work out Okay, now we move on to this week's cover story in your magazines this week. Uh, the article is Shares for Safety, written by Julian Hoffman. This is obviously a very timely topic given the serious volatility we've seen again in the past week and over the past months. The article is looking at modern value investing and how it might be able to mitigate risk for investors. Julian, welcome. Can you sort of just outline, I guess, the the premise of the piece in a bit more detail, and what you were what you were trying to to explain to to readers with the piece. Well, I, I, thanks very much, Dan. I, I was trying to update the idea of what value investing is about, or at least trying to get a, a handle on the discipline. The short answer to that question is that there isn't a lot of new literature on value investing. It it sort of relies on a foundation of sort of text that everybody knows. So it's going to be Benjamin Graham that everyone waves in your face. There was a guy who I found from the early 1990s who had who'd written a very popular value investing book, but it's almost impossible to get a copy. Uh, the, the cheapest price I could find on Amazon was two and a half thousand pounds, which kind of gives value its own sort of uh, meaning. But I did speak to Slovenia's most famous value investor called uh, Sven Karlin, uh, who has written a book on modern value investing. And his ideas, I thought, were quite interesting in that the, the thing that nobody ever really understands about the discipline is what is the margin of safety? I mean, how do you define it as a, a concept that makes any sense? In, in, in Because in a sense, one person's risk is another person's you know, idea of hell, or you know, one person's idea acceptable risk is someone's idea of something that's completely unacceptable. So, it's what I want to take. What you tend to find is that it's a very subjective narrative when it comes to, to trying to understand that concept. The easiest definition I could find, which was written by Sven, who we uh, include in the piece uh, in a um, in a sort of interview format, is that it's all about uh, understanding value as taking a, a view of risk that's inversion inverted to the price of the shares so we usually understand a low pe along with perhaps a higher dividend as in a, a sign of higher risk in a, in a in a funny sort of way so investors don't expect much from the shares so they mark them down whereas a a new value investor at least a a pure value investor would actually interpret that as um you, your your risk profile being acceptable so that's essentially that's how you can see the margin of safety that it's it's a way of looking it's a way of getting away from 
the pyramid of risk that we tend to we, we tend to associate with modern investing and uh, actually understanding those PE numbers or those share prices really as a vote of confidence so you sort of if you if you're seeing something with a very high PE it's not necessarily anything to do with the the value that the the company is creating so much as how popular that particular company or share is in the market and it, it struck me that that was a way of thinking that was far simpler than that rather strike like the abstract way that Benjamin Graham approaches the topic and and it's never it's never been fully explained so I think that that's the the essence of the article is to to get people to think about the, the current markets uh, in a way that defines it, it not being about the value of something but the risk of owning it I think that's how we the best way of um, of define of, of looking at it and uh, yes, it was a very interesting sort of trawl. And I also got to speak to Slovenia's foremost value, value investor, which uh, I think uh, nobody, not many people can say that. Yeah, I mean, as, as we, we both know, there are so many value investors in uh, Slovenia that are speaking to the foremost is a achievement in itself we'll we'll come on to uh we'll come on to to uh that in a minute because uh despite my slight sarcasm there uh i think sven Carlin is very uh very interesting character and has a lot of interesting insights but i suppose what, what kind of strikes me is you know when you say when we're looking at this uh, you know the the risk element there it can be quite counterintuitive for investors particularly when they think about value investing because for so long certainly in recent years as well we've considered it you know, from the as a contrarian investing mindset, it's certainly been contrarian in recent years. But also the very idea of buying a a lowly valued share. I know that's the you know the, the kind of definition we're trying to get away from a little bit. You know, feels like you're going against the herd. But but what we're trying to reframe it almost as it is you know those are situations where actually the safety being provided is actually quite significant in in, in such cases. Uh, you know, that margin force, that margin of safety. Yes. Is, is significant well the, the, the safety is in the price and not in the earnings i think mm. that's the the key difference in 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 the way of looking at it say what we yeah if you if you take it like a relative value investor like terry smith so his his spiel is more about um the level the buy-in level that makes sense for his level of risk but that isn't you could end up in quite buying things at very high multiples without getting the compensation if, it, if there's a massive downturn in tech shares which is basically what's happened to to, to that style of investing it, it is a counter counterintuitive so you, <laughs> you buy something because it's cheaper and and it is plugging into that idea um which actually most um most of the literature alludes to is that you know that is the idea that the stock market is a voting machine and not a weighing machine. The voting machine is is where things get bid up to dizzy levels that don't make any sense from an under from a fundamental point of view. Whereas the weighing machine is the returns that you're going to get over 10, 20 years from something that you haven't paid too much for. And uh, yeah, since we had this discussion today in in a in a in a moderation I was sharing, you know, if you're a value investor you don't get rich quickly i think that's the that's the other point to to bear in mind the, if you if you're looking for for very quick returns on a few shares then this isn't the strategy or probably the article for you i mean the, but you know this is about disciplining your investing life over quite a long time i would say and and hopefully this article will will help people to do that i suppose uh, another question that arises from from this whole topic is 
is you know separating out the you know the, those attractive values from the value traps you know trying to avoid that that kind of scenario i mean is that uh, does the literature say much uh, on that front in terms of you know some basic rules to follow there other than uh, well know, that's perhaps... where i mean that's where you're going to look into the balance sheet and the um the income statement i think you know the, that's the other side of it of uh, of the coin um i mean have, having identified a level of a price level that matches your idea of risk then you have to then take the risk of doing the research into it and that's probably where a lot of people just don't bother they, they, they don't look at what the prospects are or what the underlying industry is i mean i i don't think it's an easy approach i mean you you could just turn down hundreds of a possible you know you, you have to be prepared to turn down hundreds of possible shares in in any given period in, and then just find one or two that would fit that exact criteria that you want i mean you just want solid earnings growth over over a history of solid earning, earnings growth and uh, as far as you can project uh, one that goes out for the next five years and and it's not it's it's far harder than than you imagine i mean it's not really just a question of turning on a, a stock screen it is looking at the at the annual reports seeing what the company's doing understanding a bit about the sector that all, that is all part of it and and that is yeah the margin of of safety is is also the amount of effort you want to put in i think that that could be the other the, the key takeaway in the, the key takeaway for it yeah it's you're right it, it, it's you know giving you more chance of of coming up with something worthwhile from all that effort which is you know that kind of analysis is obviously what we're all about and i think our readers and listeners too uh would say likewise let's turn to sven carlin uh, you know you spoke to him the author of modern value investing what did you kind of glean from from that conversation you know from his from his mindset that, that was particularly interesting well, I, I thought the interesting thing I've, I've thought about what he was saying is that his take on it is that you have to be as uh, ecumenical as possible, if that isn't uh, too a religious a term, but you can't allow yourself to be rigidly attached to one sec, um, one part of the market, or even one one in, one indices or one equity index. His view is that you have to follow your research and then take let your research take you on the you know the towards the opportunities you're looking for in some ways that might be more liberal in a way than 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 traditionally conservative value investing which which tends to base itself within one one index quite rigidly i think there isn't a if you're being honest if we're being honest about it there isn't um you know a, a broad sense that you would get involved in emerging markets easily that you would have to have more expertise than um, might be available to the average retail investor but uh, Sven's take on it was that you can't let that inhibit you I think that you should be able to uh, through your own effort uh, acquire the knowledge and the expertise in order to to rate and assess opportunities wherever they are found I mean that there, there, there has to be a, a certain amount of open-mindedness about doing that which I, I thought was was an interesting take really because you usually associate that more with um perhaps the momentum area that you know momentum investors will generally go wherever the momentum is but mm. uh, it's uh yeah the idea that that as a value player um that you you could you could find yourself and you know buying shares in vietnam for example or uh, you know yeah banks think, in Mongolia. i mean that that that's alien i think to the sector and um that could be much more interesting if we did apply a, a more rigorous approach to it i think yeah i think you're right the value is often pigeonholed in a, as 
an investment style that that belongs to just a few sectors. I suppose another example is a uh, if you look at some of the value indices in the US, by all accounts, uh, Meta, you know, Facebook is going to be a fairly larger constituent of those um, at the next reshuffle. Which again is is uh, quite a counterintuitive, a slightly extreme example there, perhaps. But it just goes to show, I suppose, you can't ever rule anything out from a without having doing, done the work to begin with. Um, yeah, that's quite. I mean, and also you just can't allow yourself to say, well, I'm a value investor, so I'm just going to buy loads of insurance companies mm. that pay 8% yields or something. I mean, that, that, I don't think that's the point of that's the point of the discipline. And and hopefully the, the article updates people a bit on how they should be looking at it. Sure. Well, one thing I uh, was quite interested in um, when it comes to the analysis that one has to do to, you know, when you're, you're digging into these companies, into the balance sheets, into the potential opportunities is the world does change the way companies uh, run themselves to, uh, does change too. And one thing you highlighted as something that is shifting on that front and might be of interest to value investors was to do with inventories, which is a, a subject I'm also potentially looking at this week. So I found that quite interesting. Yes, well, I I found myself going down the rabbit warren of American cement companies uh, during this particular bit of research, which I don't actually mention in the in the article, but uh, it was actually what inspired me to look to write about it. It was to look at what effect things like inflation have on inventory and how companies manage it. And there is a certain amount of uh, balance sheet and manipulation is too strong, but management that you can do in order to counteract the risk. Uh, in some ways, you know, inflation is a positive in, for, for many people, as long as they can pass along the costs in some way onto the consumer. The way that that works with inventory, if you if you buy in a lot of raw materials at once, it's usually quite it's sort of like base material companies are great for this, that if they buy in a lot of base materials at one price, and it, uh, inflation goes up next year by 10%, then the value of their underlying inventory goes up by at least 10% um, without having to spend an additional penny on any more stock. So the the, the weird phenomenon phenomenon you get with that is that a lot of uh, companies will start over ordering on particular items, particular um, kinds of you know things like cement or you know steel. They'll they'll they'll, you know, they'll, they'll start buying up pallets and pallets of particular base materials and then just have them sitting in warehouses or in the yard somewhere and then revalue them every year on the balance sheet at a higher level. Um, and so they kind of, there is a win-win that you can do with that. Uh, the only problem is that when the market crashes <laughs> and inflation comes back, uh, goes goes back down again, or the base materials go back down in value, you could be sitting on a very large paper loss from having played that particular game. But um, I, I think we are sort of in that situation, like a bit like in the 1970s where the, the, we spurred the, that, period spurred a lot of stocking up of stuff and um, that partly you could say that's security against supply chain disruption but arguably it's also a it's also a balance sheet management uh, play that's starting to come in and uh, some companies have been badly burned by not by you know some companies like you know we were talking about Walmart earlier um, they've been burned by overstocking on the wrong things but there are other um, industries where that is actually a a good thing to do in, a, in that makes sense in this kind of environment but uh, and also I mean the cost of capital is still low it's only two and a half you know if you're, you're paying two and a half percent for eight-year debt or something then if um, inflation is going up nine percent a year then your the value of your underlying debt is eroding away I mean there's no 
there's no there's no issue with holding death on your balance sheet. These are certainly issues to keep a very close eye on, I think, in the months ahead, which um, we will be doing, and I'm sure uh, our listeners will be as well. Thank you very much for that, Julian. Uh, for more on this subject, of course, you can read the full piece in the IC out this week. That does bring us to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you to Julian and to Mitchell and to Alex and John as well. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show. Goodbye. Goodbye.